everybody. Welcome to the Patriotic American Citizen Podcast, or Pac-Man for short. I'm Ted Flint. It is good to be along with you. Today is International Women's Day. Not to be confused with International Men's Day, which I guess could be tomorrow. Uh, let's just pick a day, April 14th. I don't know. What is International Women's Day? I'm not going to get into the history of it. It's it's all to me. It's communism. It's a way to further divide the nation, divide the sexes, divide uh, divide us by race, by ethnicity, by income, whatever, by class. It's all meant to divide us. But anyway, today is International Women's Day, and uh, President Biden. It's it's still difficult for me to say those words together, has formally created a gender policy council within the White House, part of two executive orders he signed today to mark International Women's Day. In a statement, Biden said, quote, in our nation, as in all nations, women have fought for justice, shattered barriers, built and sustained economies, carried communities through times of crisis, and served with dignity and resolve. Too often they have done so while being denied the freedom, full participation, and equal opportunity all women are due. That hasn't happened in decades. They have freedom. Nobody's denying them freedom or opportunities. So the, the whole thing, the whole reason for having International Women's Day is, is pointless. It's folly. Anyway, the council will include a staff of four, three of whom will hold the title of special assistant to the president. And the council's mandate is to work across the federal government's domestic and foreign policy to fight discrimination and bias, boost economic security, increase access to health care, and advance general equality through diplomacy, trade, and defense. In other words, that means nothing. There is no discrimination based on sex or gender. And, you know, as far as boosting economic security, Biden's policies won't do that. There is a piece by, I didn't plan on starting the show talking about Joe Biden's gender council, whatever he's calling it. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the Republic. And there was a piece by Pat Buchanan earlier this week in World Net Daily. It's probably still up there. You can access it. And the title of it is, Who Really Imperils the Republic? And uh, he starts the column by uh, recounting the interview that uh, FBI Director Chris Way did with Congress earlier this week. He sat down with the Senate. They talked about uh, the events of January 6th. And Ray said that attack, that siege, his words, of the Capitol, was criminal behavior, plain and simple. And it was behavior that we at the FBI view as domestic terrorism. Now, that's what Joe Biden would call it. I mean, Biden said, don't dare call them protesters. They were a riotous mob, insurrectionists, domestic terrorists. It's that basic. It's that simple. And if anybody knows anything about being simple, it's Joe Biden. But the phrase domestic terrorism, as Buchanan writes, conjures up events from our past far graver than the four hours occupation of the Capitol. And he cites some examples, Nat Turner's rebellion, John Brown's 1859 raid on Harper's Ferry. Democrats fought that, by the way. Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City. The near assassination of Harry Truman at Blair House by Puerto Rican nationalists on November 1st, 1950. How about the shooting and wounding of five U.S. congressmen from the House Gallery, March 1, 1954? The 1974 bombing of New York's Francis Tavern, where General George Washington said farewell to his officers. Also, the work of Puerto Ricans demanding independence. Four died there on that day. Fifty were injured. 
domestic terrorism at the Capitol, what happened January 6th was not terrorism. No protesters set off any bombs. Nobody toppled any statues. No weapons were fired. Of the four people who died on that day, all were protesters. Ashley Babbitt, unfortunately, the 14-year Air Force veteran, 35-year-old woman shot to death by a Capitol cop. She tried to force her way into the Senate chamber. I mean, she broke the law. Did she deserve to die? Well, no, in my view, but she broke the law. She was a rioter. But was she a terrorist? No, not in my view. How about Benjamin Phillips? The 50-year-old Benjamin Phillips died of a stroke. 55-year-old Kevin Greeson died of a heart attack. Roseanne Boyland, 34, was apparently crushed in the melee. But nobody set off any bombs or shot any, you know, high-powered rifles. And the Capitol Police officer who died, died the following day, died of a stroke. The leftist media was saying that he had been hit with a fire extinguisher. No, that was fake. Fake news. Nobody's been charged, by the way, in that cop's death. It's been two months since he lost his life. But here's Chris Ray of the FBI. I don't trust Chris Ray. I don't trust anybody in the FBI. They're all a bunch of career bureaucrats. Now they're sitting back in there. I think they can breathe a sigh of relief, they think, because Trump is out of there. Trump knew who these people were. He, he knows them for what they are. They're a bunch of phonies. They're part of the swamp. But they're blaming Trump because Trump supporters were ready to go to D.C. and they were ready to fight. But Ray got, he had warning uh, there was going to be trouble on January 6th. Congress needs to hear glass breaking, doors kicked in, and blood from their BLM and Pantifa slave soldiers being spilled. Get violent. Stop calling this a march or rally or protest. Go there ready for war. Get our president or we die. Nothing else will achieve this goal. Ray, this is what Ray, this is the information he was privy to. What did he do with it? What did he do with the warning? Did he call the police in D.C. or Speaker Pelosi? No, he didn't do anything. They sat on it. Well, I shouldn't say he he saw it and didn't do anything about it. He never saw this Norfolk report. It was passed up the chain of command to his office until after the riot. Then it was sent by email to the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force, which includes the D.C. and Capitol Police, posted on a website and mentioned in a command center briefing in D.C., They knew what was coming. They had an idea that was going to be some, there'll be some disturbances, but not terrorism. It's a failure of the bureaucracy, the bureaucrats and the FBI. They failed, but the left is not going to let this go. Their end game here is to grow government and squash Trumpism, which seeks greater individual liberty, economic nationalism, tighter border security, a retreat from globalism. That's what Trumpism's about, and that's what the left is trying to squash. They're not going to let it go. If assaulting cops, as Buchanan pointed out, and and, and besieging public buildings amounts to domestic terrorism, what about the rioting and the the looting and the arson and the assaults on police officers we saw last summer in Minneapolis or Portland or Seattle or Kenosha or Louisville from Antifa and Black Lives Matter? That would more than qualify as domestic terrorism, in my view. Anyway, I want to spend a few minutes here and talk about probably the greatest sporting event, certainly in the 20th century. It's up there. And one of the great prize fights of all time. The first Ali Frazier fight. 
I remember it very well. I was 12 years old. It was 1971, March 8th, 50-year anniversary today. Everybody's talking about it. A lot of talk show hosts talked about it this past weekend, but it was an event. I mean, all the Hollywood's brightest stars were there. Sinatra was there and Sammy Davis, you know, the Rat Pack, all the Hollywood big bigwigs were there. It was an event. It was on closed circuit TV. We didn't get closed circuit. We, we saw the, uh, the replay on, I think, Wide World of Sports the following weekend, but it was an incredible fight. And Frazier was, I think, at his peak in 71. Ali was not. He needed a couple of, probably a couple of tune-up fights before he stepped in the ring with somebody as vicious as Frazier. But I think those, that fight, for both of those fighters, I think it was probably their peak. Certainly Frazier was never the same after the first Ali fight. People talk about, I mean, he was knocked out twice by George Foreman in uh, Kingston, Jamaica in January of 73. Then he lost to Foreman again a couple of years later, I think in 76. But he lost to Ali in the second fight in Madison Square Garden, I think it was in 74. And then, of course, the Thriller in Manila in 75. And he was, by then he was toast, Frazier. And, you know, Ali was well past his prime as well. But that first fight in 71, Frazier was, uh, he came out smoking. And he was, you know, a notoriously slow starter, Frazier. And he lost the, you know, first few rounds, I think, went to Ali. The middle rounds, Frazier started to pick things up. And in round 11, I'll never forget it. Everybody knows about the big left hook he threw from Alabama in round 15 to floor Ali. But in round 11, Frazier, I mean, pummeled. Uh, I've never seen Ali beaten that badly. Knocked him all over the place and almost knocked him out in the 11th round. Hit him with a left hook, drove him against the ropes. And I've seen that fight maybe 30 times, thanks to YouTube, 30 or 40 times. And uh, it was just, it was an incredible event. And it was political, as fights tend to be. All the white people, or most of them, wanted Frazier. And all the black people wanted Ali. The two men were so diametrically opposed in every way. Uh, Frazier was a Christian. Ali at that time, I guess he was a Muslim up until the day he died. He was Muslim. Frazier was, again, Christian. Frazier was married to the same woman. Had, I think, nine, eight or nine kids by her. But eventually, he had children by other, other women later in life. But at that time, he was married to one woman. Ali had been married, you know, two or three different times by then. And uh, I remember Bryant Gumble. Uh, he gave an interview years ago about that fight. He remembers the fight. I think he's about my age, maybe 60 or late 50s. And he was devastated when Ali lost. He wanted Ali badly. He said, because... Ali represented so much to black people during those times. And he, he still does, obviously. And Frazier, you know, Frazier was a son of a sharecropper. He was, a, you know, somebody who uh, grew up in the, in the uh, Jim Crow South. But Ali labeled him an Uncle Tom. And that just killed Frazier. You know, calling him ugly, too ugly to be champion. And, you know, I'm going to get the gorilla in Manila and all this other stuff. But I think when he called Frazier an Uncle Tom, that hurt him more than anything else. Because Frazier was anything but. But white people, I remember my father wanted Joe Frazier. He couldn't stand Ali. And like a lot of 10 and 12-year-old boys, you take your cues from your father. He was the uh, most important man in my life then. And he wanted Frazier. So we all wanted Frazier. My brothers and I, we were pulling hard for Frazier. And Frazier won the fight. Of course, he he lost the uh, remaining two fights of that trilogy. But Bryant Gumbles was just devastated. He said he never got over it. He said that fight did more to crystallize his views on race relations in America. 
and it was just an event. I, I you know, I'll never forget it. Joe, Fra- Joe Frazier was my favorite uh, boxer of all time. He and Tommy Hearns and uh, there are a few others, but Frazier did his talking inside the ring. That's what I liked about him. When I was when I was uh, in high school, I was on the school newspaper, and I wrote a piece about Ali, and I was condemning him. I didn't know anything. I was 14, 15 years old, whatever, sixteen. I said, here's a guy who wouldn't fight for his country, but he fought for the almighty dollar. Ali said that he didn't go to Vietnam because it was an unjust war. It was a war where, in which white men were sending black men to kill yellow men. And he couldn't see the, uh, the wisdom of it. So he didn't go. He went to, you know, went to prison for a couple of years and lost probably the best years of his athletic life. His prime in his mid to late 20s, he spent time in prison. Frazier was the champion then. And uh, anyway, March 8th, 1971, one of the great prize fights of all time. I think one of the great sporting events in uh, the history of our country. Ali Frazier won. That's how we're going to wrap things up. By the way, if you're thinking of doing a podcast, they're easy. If you have the equipment, you have the uh, the know-how. And I I dare say uh, if you have the, the uh, vocal ability, but you don't even need that nowadays. But anyway, if you have a good voice and you want to share what you know with the world, you can do that by getting in touch with Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch a podcast. Not only that, but Buzzsprout gets your show listed in every major podcast platform. You'll get a great looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening tools to promote your episodes, and a lot more. So why not join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout and get your message out to the world? All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and get started today. Plus, if you sign up for a paid plan, they'll give you a $20 Amazon gift card. Again, follow the link in the show notes so that Buzzsprout knows that I, Pac-Man, patriotic American citizen Ted Flint, sent you. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to launch a podcast. And that's going to wrap things up for this edition of Pac-Man, Patriotic American Citizen. If you like the show, if you like what you heard today, and if you uh, want to hear more programs, we have an archive uh, list of shows, not just this one, but other fine shows, the Ken and Mike show. And we have a host of other uh, fine broadcasters you can access by going to the bmgnetwork.com. You can also read our our columns. I've written a column recently on the Equality Act, what that means. And you, I guess it's uh, the title of it is uh, Your Daily Perusal. And uh, so that's up there too. And a, a lot of fine program if you, if you, programming. If you want to be entertained and enlightened and uh, just informed from a, a patriotic worldview, we, we love America, those of us working for the BMG Network. We love God. And we love our country, we love our families, and uh, just give us a listen. Try it. Again, the bmgnetwork.com. And if the Lord wills it, we will talk to you real soon. The Pac-Man Podcast was produced in the BMG Studio. Music by Kevin McLeod. For more information about the Pac-Man Podcast, go to the BMG Network on Facebook. And be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Pac-Man Podcast with Ted Flint. <laughs>